Being a CISO is like waging a never-ending chess game against players you don't know, can't see, and attack without warning. On this podcast, cybersecurity experts have a pragmatic dialogue on cyber risk, current attacks, and security trends. Welcome to the CISO's Gambit. Today on the first episode of the 2023 CISO's Gambit, we have a very special guest from the academic world, Dr. Joseph Drazen, who is the Assistant Vice President for Planning and Continuous Improvement at the University of Maryland, College Park's Division of Information Technology, and a faculty fellow in the Honors College. Joseph is an expert in organizational development, process engineering, enterprise system planning and implementation, technology leadership and strategy, and change management. I thought it'd be great to have him join the show today to give us a perspective that can help CISOs bridge the gap between the technical cyber world that they traditionally live in into a broader and humanistic view of the factors that determine an organization's success. Dr. Joseph Drazen, thank you for joining us on the show today. Great to be here. Joseph, or you prefer Dr. Drazen? Joseph is fine. Joseph, to clarify that you are here as an academic researcher and practitioner representing yourself and not the University of Maryland. That is correct. For the audience that are not familiar with your area of study and expertise, would you mind giving a overview of what it entails and the traditional ways that your body of work is leveraged throughout academia? Certainly. And that's a big question. It's a growing answer. I think most of your audience is is familiar with the concepts of change management. That's been a term that every year becomes more and more popular. Well, there's a lot of parts of change management and organizational development really is the focus on many of those parts. And it is about understanding the experience that people have when they work in an organization. It's There's a lot of psychology involved with it, a lot of sociology involved with it. And it's really when those two parts come together within a organization, usually a commercial organization, but really any organization, and how they work together. And why this has been such a focus is because as organizations go through large-scale changes, so many factors about our individual personality get impacted and how we engage with those changes is heavily influenced by the factors in the study of organizational development. And therefore, there's just been a growing interest as change has been more frequent and also, unfortunately, a lot of challenges and failures in the area of change. And so, there's a, again, there's a number of parts that we study, but a lot of it is around individuals' identity and their experience and their role within organizations, and then how they engage their relationship with the organization and their relationship with each other and their relationship with their leaders in an organization. When we understand that, we can create much more effective organizations. And as a bonus, we tend to have greater change success and somewhat the reason I became involved in a large, to a large degree, we make the experience of the people in the organization much healthier. And that's really one of the major goals of the field. You had mentioned that ensuring that the change in and of itself is healthy in the organization, obviously coming out healthy is a byproduct of that. Regarding a lot of the changes that happen within information security or risk management. Often there is a very tactical focus on immediate outcomes or near immediate outcomes. However, in my experience, 
the human element is often not to say that it's not considered because I don't think that's fair, but I've observed that a lot of the change that occurs within an organization and by extension applying to IT and information security is managed more from the perspective of this is your role, this is what you do, and here's what I expect for you to achieve in that particular role. And it can be very, I guess the right word would be very prescriptive. However, within said organizations, a lot of these individuals feel like they could contribute more, contribute differently for the betterment of the mission or the betterment of the business. From your research and experience working with a lot of leading organizations, how are you seeing the more successful leaders navigate some of these changes and ensuring that they're finding a way to prepare the individual, or in some cases, individuals, for absorbing and being successful with change that's introduced? And I know that that's multi, multi layered and probably could take the entire show, but in general. So, yeah, so there was a lot to unpack within there and a lot of really great thoughts and questions. One of, I think, the core challenges, particularly in information technology, and I think specifically in security, and I'll talk a little bit more about that because I think the security space has some of its unique challenges. But a lot of us are engineers by background, and if not technically engineers, we think that way. And we tend to view organizations as systems of groups that do activities and execute processes and so forth. You were a developer in a former life, is that correct? Yes. I actually started in software engineering and I worked for, I don't know, five, upwards of five to 10 years. And actually the reason I left, which leads somewhat into this answer and this topic is I observed that the quality of what I was developing actually had very little to do with the success of a project. It was much more about how I engaged with my clients, how they learned about the system, how they understood the strategy behind the system, and so forth. So when I saw that really huge discrepancy in success, I said, that's what I want to make my career about. I want to understand why does it work sometimes and not other times. So getting back to your question, When we think of that engineering view of organizations, which is a valid way to think about it, we often don't appreciate the effect we're having on the people that we're moving around, that we are affecting their world in sometimes significant ways that we don't even realize, and we don't always appreciate how important their role is to them and their relation to their role and and their relationship to other people. A really interesting experience I share when I do a lot of process improvement work, obviously workforce automation is a big part of that. And we usually go into organizations and we're helping them automate manual processes. And and everyone usually comes in thinking, who would enjoy this paper pushing process? And we think we're helping people by automating everything. But what I observed early on and what we're very cognizant of is that Even though you are getting rid of an inefficient process, you need to appreciate that that was still that person's 
role. They were the paper pusher. They are no longer the paper pusher. They're no longer going to meet this other person every day that they were pushing paper to. So even though it's important that we do it, and I wouldn't ever suggest to have manual processes, we need to understand that we often overlook that we're making changes we're not even aware of and that those cause those can cause issues. And often the people that we're affecting may react cynically or negatively, and they don't even know why they are doing that. When people are, are taking actions that can be construed as resisting a change, it's actually often these other feelings that are acting out in these ways, whether it's cynicism or feeling of not being included, which you, you mentioned earlier around decision-making, people's observations of fairness in the decision, and really their identity and relationship to the organization, often those get expressed in ways that if you're a leader, you're seeing these staff are just being difficult. They just don't like the change because they want to keep doing what they have been doing. And that misinterpretation, I think, is one of the things that causes challenges with change. Your point regarding the way that some individuals react to it is something that I've certainly seen during my days of leading technical M&A projects where the organization being acquired really has a handful of ways that they can react. And I know you and I have both gone through that in our careers where we've been the acquired entity and we've also been the acquiring entity. And it's always fascinating that organizations, depending upon their culture, and again, this is a layperson speaking about this, seem to react positively or negatively to the change, depending upon the level of perceived say or direction that they have in that. Is that in line with what you've seen either through your practitioner work or your research? Absolutely. And there's a to unpack, there's a few pieces in that. It really comes down to a couple factors. Certainly, when it, particularly if you're the organization being acquired, you are taking a significant impact to, to a number of your identity. First of all, you at some point were hoping to be a successful organization. You may no longer feel that you're a successful organization. That's a huge blow to the ego. You are probably really worried about whether you may be keeping your job which is a huge amount of anxiety that's being created. And you just don't know what's coming. And uncertainty, which is my specific area of research and work, is one of the most debilitating anxiety drivers. People are able to deal with some level of uncertainty in their life. We always have to deal with it. But we really, our minds rely on the world being stable and standard and operating the same thing every day. It's the reason if you're not careful when you drive on the weekend, you end up driving to the office for those of us who still go to an office and you don't even realize it's happened. That's how on autopilot we are most of our lives. So we rely on that and it's really important. So when you start making tons of changes to people's lives, it destabilizes them and can cause what essentially turns into a fight or flight response, which in organizations we see as people disengaging with work, leaving the organization, becoming cynical. You can even have sabotage and really negative reactions. But that is, in my work and my observations, essentially the fight or flight response acting out in an organizational context. Now, there's a lot of things organizations can do to help fight that. As I said, uncertainty is one of the big concepts I drive on. So honest and authentic communication is really key, helping people understand, even if it's bad news. Having clear plans that are published that people understand is really important. 
having a trusted leadership. So if people don't feel like they have control over their environment, if they think there's a leader that is looking out for them and who does have power and control, they're actually willing to secede a lot of their own influence and be trusting of their leader. And that that's actually a case that started my original research as I saw organizations that were successful during M&As and trusted leadership was really one of the key elements that seemed to differentiate between the two. But you mentioned other things like how decisions are made and you know listening to people, and it has to be authentic. People can see through BS so fast. To give you a sense, by the way, of how important this factor is, there was, I think it was in Eastern Europe, there was a, a manufacturing company, a factory going through layoffs, and this was a, a, a pretty famous study. And they were studying the psychological well-being of the staff who are going through it, essentially how they're feeling. And there were three groups of people, which kind of makes the perfect research study. There were people who had already known they were going to keep their job. There were people who knew they were going to be fired. And there were people who didn't know yet. The people who knew they were going to keep the job, not surprisingly, were doing best. They were the healthiest. But the most unhealthy people were not the people who were going to, knew they were losing the jobs. It was the people who didn't know yet. They were the ones who really were struggling. It's because of that uncertainty. Once you know that finality has come, you can get on with your life. I mean, you may go through depression. It's a very negative experience, but you at least have structure now. And we see this. This is you know one piece of advice I always give organizations is if you're going to do layoffs, do them once. Don't do it as a trickle effect where you do it every quarter or whatever. That is incredibly destabilizing to an organization. You need to do what you need to do make the statement, we're done, we're moving on. People can deal with that a lot better. So the strategy of calling everyone in to a room with human resources and then having the employees go back to their desks until HR comes and taps them on the shoulder, not recommended? You're not going to have a very productive day. I would also, on a personal level, the research bears this out, that how people are treated during a change has a huge impact on how their engagement with the organization. Even when negative things are happening in an organization, it's really, really important that leaders treat people with respect and, and care and realize when you're doing something, I think most, if not all of us had to lay, have had to lay people off before, you, you appreciate the damage you're doing to that individual, even if it's completely justified and needs to happen, you need to be very respectful and caring in how you execute that process not only for that individual, but for the other individuals around you. We've talked in the past about this concept of employees, team member, colleagues, quote unquote, resistant to change. And this idea that certain individuals are much more difficult to get them to see kind of the big picture. I've seen it both as a former consultant, as a security leader, IT leader, where those types of conversations happen behind closed doors and one individual or or an entire group is labeled as being very resistant to change. This is a much more complex than somebody painting with a broad brush and saying that an entire group of individuals, a team is falling down this path of not wanting to quote unquote, get on board with the organization or the particular changes. When faced with this, how have you seen organizations or leaders handle these types of cases? And is it even really a thing or is it a perception? Resistance to change is 
as I observe, is a term used to identify a whole bunch of symptoms, many of which are not actually resistance to a change. I think the phrase is unhelpful for a number of reasons. One, it you what are you going to do with that? It doesn't help you solve your problem. The other is it really puts the onus for the change on the staff and not the leadership, where really the role of change lies within, is with the leadership. So it, it can be leadership unintentionally somewhat not taking responsibility for a change when they, when they use that term. But w- one of the first questions people should ask is, what are people resisting? And we know people don't always resist change. Obviously, when, when COVID hit the U.S., everyone went remote. I, my own organization, many other organizations did it almost overnight. We didn't see a lot of resistance to that catastrophic change of telling people to work remote, don't come into the office anymore. In fact, most of our staff were pretty happy with it. People don't always resist change. You go give everyone a promotion, I promise you, none of them will resist it. So it's not change that they resist. They tend to resist uncertainty and negative things. If you are, for instance, going through layoffs, you're probably not going to have staff very happy with that. That shouldn't be a surprise. I have a couple thoughts on what people can look for when they're seeing things that are perceived as resistance to change whether it's cynicism or disengagement or conflict and a number of other things. So some questions to consider is, first of all, are people really aware of the change? Do they understand the specifics of it? Not just a new system is coming in, but specifically what is about it. This is why the quicker you can get that that sandbox up there, the quicker you can get that training site up there for them to see the new software, the better. That's really critical. The longer they're in that limbo of not knowing That's the the toughest time. Then you have to ask yourself, do these staff understand why we're doing this? Assuming there's some change that's going to benefit the organization, most people are, most, I'm I'm going to always talk in general, are pretty reasonable and intelligent. Do they understand why we're doing it? A lot of times it turns out that leaders make a lot of assumptions about what the staff understands about the change. And it turns out the staff don't have as great an understanding as the leadership believes and there's all sorts of reasons why that, and we could have a whole conversation just on communication, and I'll try and not go down that rabbit hole, whether we're surveying change readiness or change reactions, asking questions like, will this change make your job easier or make your job better? Do you think you'll be able to be more effective after this change? Do you understand the goals of this change? Do people really understand what we're doing, why we're doing? Are they, do they think this is going to be a good idea? The results of that can give you a ton of information on where your gaps in communication may be. So that's one of the other things we look at. The other area, and I think that is really important now, is people's readiness for change. And that is somewhat the level of fatigue and burnout they're under. And do they have the capacity to execute this change? And we'll sometimes ask questions around, how do you feel at the end of a weekend? How do you you feel when you take a vacation, you really get away from your work and so forth. Particularly during reorganizations, a lot of times we're trying to create redundancy and backup. And so we're trying to get a sense of, will that help people? And so there's a lot more, but a lot of these questions can help understand this big resistance to change. What is driving that resistance? What is happening that we are perceiving that? And hopefully, therefore, we can implement some interventions, whether it's better communication, training, whatever it is. And those can be really effective. And it actually takes significantly more effort than most organizations recognize to communicate a change. 
I've been doing this for decades and I'm still shocked at the number of times we've helped with communication of a change. And there are still parts of an organization that don't get it. So it's hard to overemphasize how challenging it is. On the topic of the idea of readiness for change, you mentioned getting a good understanding of fatigue associated with the individuals that are about to undergo the change, whether positive or negative. In my experience, I haven't seen a lot of organizations utilize that because it's very ephemeral, right? I mean, you can look at somebody and say, yeah, they're physically fatigued. That's one thing. But the psychological aspects of it, the impacts that happen to productivity and then the potential blowback that happens in the context of change, I'm not aware of mechanisms that are out there that are utilized by, let's say, human resources, people in talent to track some of these things to determine whether or not making a change at a particular point in time is the best decision for the organization. Is there anything like that that can be utilized by non-academics in this particular space or training that's utilized by organizations that help them get a better pulse on where their organization is going into a massive change? This is actually a, a huge area of work that people are trying to develop good survey instruments. There are some organizations out there that are specialized in this that can help, but it is a very, very niche bit of work that is only now, I think, really becoming a focus. So there are some out there, none that I would say are the gold standard of how to assess, but if you do anything, it's better than doing nothing. Even some of the simple questions, don't try and do it yourself, get a methodology group that can actually write a proper survey to execute. But there is a, a growing area of work. And one thing you kind of mentioned is a piece I'm working on right now. You know, this idea about behind change readiness and are people fatigued? My first thought was exactly what you said. If they're too fatigued, we won't do this change because it's just going to collapse. Well, the reality is most of the time, organizations don't have a choice in change. I mean, every now and then there's something you can put off, but a lot of times large changes because we have a competitive disadvantage and we may be out of business by the time our staff are ready for this change. And so the real question is how do leaders execute a change knowing the staff are in this somewhat debilitated state? And I think that's the real question leaders need to be going into change with that on their mind, how do I make my staff who many are already experiencing burnout, who are already experiencing engagement issues with organizations, how do I help them through this? Because they are going through a very, very challenging time. And another story I love to tell, which I think impresses upon people just how debilitating even minor changes can be. There was an organization, they were studying the kind of emotional state of individuals going through a change. I'll tell you the change at the end of the story because it'll have more fun of an impact. And they were studying their emotional state. And you have the classic experiences that we observe in our roles as leaders. People deny that the change is going to happen. They fight the change. They get angry about the change. They go through bargaining stages of, well, can I play this role in the new organization? And they finally reach this point of, okay, this change is happening. So these stages of grief that we normally associate with very tragic events in individuals' lives, you actually can observe it going through changes in your organization. I encourage people to really think about that when they hear people say things like, oh, I've heard about this change is coming. I don't think it's really going to happen or negotiating about a change and thinking about it in those terms of people are going through this emotional 
bridge that we go through when we see something coming. Now, in this instance, and these people went through this very strong emotional state, it happened to be an office move, which most of us don't think as a terribly big change. No one was losing their job, but it had a huge impact on where these people live. They were moving to a new location. They weren't going to be at the headquarters anymore. It was having a huge impact on their identity, what they saw as their importance related to the organization. It was a very powerful experience. And so I think understanding how even a change like that has such an impact on individuals, that should give some indication of what's happening when you do a major change. I've observed that there are varying degrees of how an organization or individuals within said organization classify a particular change as major or not. And one that we see quite a bit is the transition from previous methods of delivering networking, security, even application development. When we saw back in the early 2000s, the migration to cloud or mid-2000s, excuse me, the migration to cloud where certain groups embraced it, developers, in terms of infrastructure as a service or platform as a service. But yet we saw other groups, I'm not going to say that they dragged their feet, but simply were very resistant to moving away from their existing infrastructures, their existing processes associated with it. And we're seeing a lot of the consequences of some of this. Directionally, these organizations are really struggling to convince their stakeholders which I'm including their employees in there, that this is the best change for the organization. In your experience, have you run into this, which I imagine you have, but as a leader, knowing that there's a business imperative or a mission imperative that requires this change, yet you've got individuals that may be very vocal, may be very influential within the organization that don't want to get on board. How does somebody navigate this other than making it a kind of heavy-handed, well, this is the way it is, which obviously can happen at any point in time, what would you advise them that they might be able to, to try to bring those individuals along and to make that change, whether it's scary or disruptive, so they can ease into it a little bit more? So that is an incredibly challenging situation for a number of reasons. And you're really talking about the difference between a learning organization or a learning individual and someone who takes pride in their technical, strictly in their technical knowledge rather than their ability to learn new technical knowledge. And I'm not saying that critically, we're all, we're all different. And I'll share in a few minutes my own negative experience with that. But as leaders, when we approach this, we hopefully can see that it's not really changing our organization. Our, our service is the same. Our values are the same. It's how we're delivering our service that is altering. And we have to keep going through that. And for individuals who are about to go through that, that can be incredibly impactful on what they see as the value they bring to the organization. Perfect example, as I said, I, I just went through this recently with a university I, I teach some classes at. We were going through a software change in one of our methodology softwares. And I didn't think it was a good idea. I thought we were moving to technology too quickly. The students weren't going to learn how to do this by hand, which I saw as much more important. And we've been debating this for months. And one morning I woke up and realized, I don't think it's actually that I believe that what we're doing right now is a better method. I don't actually know the new software. And that's what I'm really scared of. And I kind of had that realization that I'm, I'm personifying the exact problem that I help organizations with. 
And once I became comfortable with that new technology, which I'm actually still working on, I was much more engaged with the new approach. And it's why I share that is often we are lying to ourselves to tell ourselves stories, to make ourselves comfortable. So when you see employees who are resisting it, it often is things around their personal readiness, their personal knowledge, or what they view themselves as valuable. So leaders helping to transition people from you're valuable because you know technology XYZ and you're the person we all go for technology X, Y, and Z. We value you because you know how to deliver the service. You understand this part of our business and how we operate and what we value. But the technology they're learning right now, in five years, that's going to be the one that people are fighting to keep. It's like everyone loves the second string quarterback on a football team until they play. And now they like the third string quarterback. So we make all this effort to get people into a new technology. And we know in a few years, that's the technology they love, have always loved, and they don't want to go to the, they may not want to go to the next one. And so getting organizations, and this is a whole other area, again, kind of this learning mode where you're constantly going through learning helps kind of break us free from this change, freeze in a new state, change, freeze in a new state. And that's just really not how organizations actually operate. So any organization says we're going through the biggest change we've ever gone through. We'll never go through a change like this again. It's just not the case. I remember going through one of those many mergers and acquisitions and learning the first day that we met with the technical team. I was running networks at the time and met with theirs. And I found out that all the firewalls that they were utilizing, I have never had any hands on with and feeling the dread of how am I going to add value to this organization if I can't even administrate this? One could argue I overcompensated by going in and getting up to date and certified on all of this stuff. But I saw it as a necessity to remain relevant. Ironically, that was the least valuable thing that I was actually bringing to the table. I just didn't realize it at the time because my role would expand shortly thereafter. No longer was I needing to turn knobs and push buttons to make the organization run. So that's interesting that you are seeing this type of challenge, we're dealing with very complex feelings. Imagine that across many of the organizations you've advised that are in academia, private, public, that you've likely run into multiple silos across one organization. Let's say IT as an example, where historically there's tension, and again, painting with a very broad brush here, Historically, there's tension between groups like infrastructure and development, infrastructure and security, security and development, legal and security. And we find that they tend to be very siloed and very resistant to each other, let alone change. Have you had these types of observations and what are a couple of common themes that you've encountered and what might a leader or leaders be able to do to improve that? So... By the way, it's not just IT. Silos grow up for a number of reasons in a number of different organizations. And and there's a lot of reasons for that. Some are very sociological 
in terms of if you're all a bunch of engineers, you have a common education, a common way of thinking. When you're a software engineer, you tend to see problems one way. When you're a project manager, we almost all have different languages. So I think that's one of the challenges. We also rarely understand or appreciate the challenges other people are under. We all have very difficult jobs, very complex jobs, but we rarely really appreciate what a software engineer goes through if you're, again, a project manager or you're a business analyst, understanding what a network engineer does. So sometimes it, a lot of it's actually that just lack of understanding and appreciation makes it difficult to engage. That's why when you can create cross-functional teams, that can be really beneficial because people learn each other's roles. Uh, one of the... Um, Activities we do when we're doing process re-engineering is we build these swim lanes and flow charts and all that good stuff. But an activity we do is we blow them up on plotter paper and we cover a whole wall with a swim lane to show everyone in the group from every part where they are in the process. And they realize that they're all part of the same process. They're just playing a different role in it. And they start to appreciate what one another are doing and understand how their work affects the others before and, and ahead of them, and they start to view things a little differently. So that, that's kind of on a, you know, on a staffing more tactical level. I think one of the challenges also leaders can help themselves with is when they're actually developing performance goals. Often the performance goals for you know, chief financial officer are financial in nature. A chief security officer is told, you know, let's not have any hacks. A chief information officer is you know, given a bunch of metrics. When you create those individual metrics, those leaders, of course, are going to drive their work towards their metrics and drive their team towards those metrics. So the more siloed those metrics are, we shouldn't be surprised that the organizations under them, therefore, become siloed. So the more the goals and objectives for leaders, directors, even managers, even staff that are collaborative in nature, I think can do a lot to help with some of that siloing. So we were working with an organization that, like many, has professional development goals, you know, learn the next technology. We started putting goals in around technologies and ideas that were in neighboring organizations. Not to say your software engineer has to become a certified network engineer or your project managers have to become Java programmers, but at least to have some training and understanding and appreciation for what they did. It helps with the language. It helps with understanding how those people think. And some organizations even take this towards to the level of mentoring and job rotation and so forth. Seeing it not just as a way to develop skill, but as a way to create collaboration within their unit. So job rotation has always been difficult in certain parts of IT, given the traditional specific skill sets coming out of one group. One could argue a developer might become a QA person or a QA person might become a developer, but that presumes that there is equivalency in the skill set and the skills are, are significantly different. We definitely see this in the networking and the security world where there is a constant back and forth about who makes the changes, who derives the policy. Well, usually there's some agreement on the policy piece, but the actual operational aspects of it, there's often a sentiment of saying, well, they don't have the ability to execute, et cetera, et cetera. So it's interesting that the ways that we learned early as leaders, whether that's job rotation or putting them in the foxhole together, is actually one way that they can 
better understand each other. And that's what it sounds like that there's a, I'm not going to say it's empathy, but maybe it is a understanding of what your colleague is facing and what your role is in either making that experience for them better or easier and appreciating that. It really is. And empathy is a, a good word because it's, I've, I've observed this and, and I think we all have, and I'll pick on software engineers because I used to be one. It's really easy for non-technical people to just be like, just make this box work this way or make this, how hard can that be? And we know from an engineering standpoint, it's really challenging because converting business concepts, which are you know human concepts to digital world is very challenging. That's not how computers naturally think. But most people don't realize it, particularly as technology and software has become so good and so sophisticated, people lose some of that appreciation for that for the talent. But when they are able to sit with engineers and observe their work, they, they really do build this appreciation for, for the challenges they face. And analysts will start to understand, this is, this is how I should be writing my requirements or my design documents, because now I see how they think. In the same way, and when I have engineers work with analysts, when they're doing like problem definition, they get such a more rich understanding of how the business operates. And that helps them when they're having to make complex decisions about how they should have a function work. And you see this really throughout, whether it's security people, project managers, financial analysts, whatever it is, everyone, I mean, most of us have spent years and years, decades honing our skill into an area that we sometimes forget that our colleagues did the same thing and that there's so much involved in what they do. So ways that we have to expose each other to that or have different groups presenting what they're working on. And don't be shy about like the interesting technology behind it. I was recently at the unveiling of a new supercomputer. And trust me, I understand very little of the technology or the research that was being conducted on that supercomputer. But walking around that room, I had a whole new appreciation for the sophisticated work the network engineers were doing and the amount, the incredible amount of effort they put in to constructing this amazing machine. And then just the amazing research that was being executed on it. I think like I left being feeling like I, I work with awesome people. And I think that's a great feeling because we, so many of us do work with awesome people. We just don't always fully appreciate it. That's a great point. I strive to understand where everyone is coming from for the purposes of further educating myself, but also understanding what somebody is up against. What have you seen as shared traits that imply a greater likelihood of success? You mentioned earlier that automation as a thing is great. However, managing such a change requires transparency and ensuring that the impact is well understood by the folks that are part of that change or being affected by that change. So that might be one of them, but what other things, let's say three things that have you observed that tend to be markers of an organization being on the path to successfully navigating change, whether it's technological or organizational in nature? I will tell you the number one indicator, and I don't know the numbers, but I will say by far, 
is success in previous changes. History tends to dictate the future. But one of the reasons that is, is organizations that are successful with change, their staff and their leaders become more confident in change. And all that anxiety that they typically might experience, they don't have as much of because I've been through this before and we've been successful, we'll be successful again. It's also why organizations that have had a bunch of rocky changes face so much cynicism and often negative feelings towards their upcoming change. Again, shouldn't be a surprise. So that's by far the number one factor that's an indicator. Unfortunately, that's not one you can really affect once it's already happened. Some of the leadership traits that I've observed that are really important, the trustworthiness of the leader, how the staff view them, and that includes the ability of the leader to execute change, so that staff actually have confidence in their ability, their benevolence towards the staff, how they feel about them, and then the staff's understanding of how that leader made decision-making. So that's another major factor. Really related close to that is the servant leadership model seems to have a really positive effect on change. Um, Those are leaders who really view their role as serving their staff on their organization. I think there's a lot, you know, when you were talking, you've talked about empathy, we've talked about trust, a lot of those things get kind of tied up with it, but that's a, a leadership trait that seems to have a huge impact on it. And the third one is the level of health and how organizations make decisions. And there's a whole field and study of this, but how participative the decision-making process is, how participative the change process is, how transparent it is, and how much people understand who is making the decision. Those three components are a big part of how much people will trust the decisions being made. So... You start off with your ground level of how have we done in the past. That's huge, in fact, you know, uh, indicator of success. Then you have the leadership factors of how much do staff trust the leader? How good of a bond have they built up with their staff? And then it comes down to how much do the staff trust how that decision that led to the change were made. If the staff feel like they were involved or at least had some understanding, if the staff feel that the right information was used to make that decision, that they understand who made this decision, they tend to actually be on board with it more often than not, even if it's not the decision that they might have liked. If they feel that it was a just process and well adjudicated and it was authentic, people are much more likely to go along with it. So those are three that some organizations, I think, can somewhat self-assess how ready they are for a change. There's obviously a ton of other factors. We've talked about you know, adaptability and and learning organizations and and other things that come into play. But those are some that organizations can think about. Well, Dr. Drazen, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate all the wonderful insight. Thank you, Sean. I had a really good time. I appreciate you having me on. You've been listening to the CISO's Gambit. I'm your host, Sean Cordero. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this show, please leave a comment and subscribe. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act 
of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com.